Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we catch up with Lucas from Centrifuge to chat about the origin of the project, how privacy plays a role, and what it means to build with ZK Snarks today. Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, NewCypher. NewCypher is a Y Combinator-backed company that builds privacy-preserving infrastructure and cryptographic protocols. They are currently looking for an engineering lead to work on a new open-source crypto system for privacy-preserving smart contracts. This is a brand new product, and you'll get to work on a lot of cool primitives like fully homomorphic encryption and zero-knowledge proofs. NewCypher is headquartered in SF, but is a remote-first company. For more about their work, have a look at newcipher.com, that's N-U-C-Y-P-H-E-R.com, or check out the link in the show notes for more about the lead engineer role. So thank you again, NewCypher. And now here's our interview with Lucas. So today we're sitting with Lucas Vogelzang, who is the CEO of Centrifuge. Welcome to the show. Hi, Anna. Hi, Frederick. Hello, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Lucas is a friend of the show and the Summit series. You actually helped me uh, program the third edition of the Summit. Yeah, I've been to almost all of them. I love them. They're great events. <laughs> I think we actually met each other through that, didn't we? I think we did, yeah, at yeah. the first one you did. I think uh, someone passed along that there is this uh, privacy zero-knowledge event going on and... Uh, so I just decided to show up, and I think that was, yeah, the beginning. Wow, such a different era. <laughs> it's I two years ago. It's two years ago. It's crazy. <laughs> um, the thing I've been curious about with you is, like, I know that you were, used to work in startups, in regular startups, Web2. I never really got, like, where your transition point happened. And also, whether or not, like, zero knowledge was, like... The moment was that the thing that you transitioned right into, or was there anything before? So maybe a little bit of background on what you were working on before, and yeah, what that point was for you would be cool. Um, yeah, so maybe like I'll I'll just go a little bit back further because I think actually for me the interesting thing is it kind of started in high school where I was like just loved to code, and like basically by the time I left high school, I was designing websites, building products. I wanted to do a startup like right away i started studying and i dropped out after half a year of, of doing computer science because i found a startup to work on and that actually was successful um we built a business we launched something and that was all in the in the web 2.0 area that was in in 2009 um and so i, I spent um quite a few years in silicon valley and, and working in different things and like many times being like in the very early phases of, of new projects. And so this is this was my motivation and how I was sort of working in, in tech in the past. And then I I took a bit of an, an off time in, um, I, I traveled for a year through South America and I, I came back and I knew that like I might not necessarily want to go back to Silicon Valley. It was kind of getting boring. Um, I wanted to do a tech, I, I really looked for a technical challenge because like the building a company and like just selling a consumer product in a like I don't know Instagram or or um, something like that, um, or even like the way business software works, right? I didn't want to invent the next Slack. Yeah, that, that seemed like a boring challenge. And so the thing is, I looked. I was sort of toying with two subjects. It was uh, blockchain um, decentralization and AI. So for me, AI seemed much more sciencey and and um, like a little bit it still be, ended up being like a product that I probably couldn't relate to as much. And so I decided to go with blockchain first. Um, and I actually, and, and so I realized that this, oh, like this is basically brings me back into this open source community that I basically like learned everything in. I was um, like hanging out on IRC channels for like every night as a kid um, and like learning to like find my way through the Unix and Linux uh environment like setting up my computers and like sort of tr contributing to these projects and 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 so like coming into this blockchain it's like oh wow like there's actually 
projects that don't just use open source software like a lot of the web 2.0 startups do but they actually like make their entire business model around developing open source software and found a way to um in, to to make a business out of it to find a business model that works or hopefully will is the jury is still out on that hmm. and yet like in doing that did you also find like the story of kind of dropping out of university and being a hustler and just getting into it and learning, like being very self-taught, I imagine. Did that, was that still compatible in this space or was that sort of something you had to like rethink? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, like, I think you can, you can write your first Solidity Smart Contract without a computer science degree, master's or bachelor's. But then um, there were like, I think there were definitely instances and I still think many times I was like, wow, like what would, it, how would it have been different if I decided to study at ETH computer science for four years and like spend two years basically doing math, which um, if you're looking at zero knowledge proofs and privacy technology, right? Like very quickly you run into uh, into these a lot of math in, into a lot of math yes exactly <laughs> um i'm not i don't come out of academia but i i look at okay like these technologies like how can we actually get them to be adopted um and so um i do i, I did have quite a bit of a learning curve um and over the last few years i've this is like a significant um focus of mine was like making sure that that i stay up to date with everything that's happening and and uh, understand understand these technologies because they are very critical, I think, to what we are all building. Um, because decentralization with uh, without privacy, I think, is not a world we we want to live in. Your story is kind of an intriguing one. It, it to me, it um, signifies this sort of the the time we're in, where you someone comes into this space from web two and goes holy shit there's so much theory and there's so much you need to know like i feel like i need a master's degree in computer science whereas in web two you know that that's absolutely not relevant and like no one needs a programming degree or like a computer science degree to do glue coding but i think to make web three actually successful we probably need to make web three as boring as web two because otherwise people are just not going to get into it and I, th I mean, I think that's why Ethereum is so so successful, right? Because it can make uh, web web three coding as easy as web two coding. Like if you do everything on a public blockchain, you basically use it as your user interface, as your database, as like everything. Then then actually, we've we've sort of achieved that that goal there. The problem is, it's you like as soon as you start to do anything more complicated, um, it either becomes extremely expensive to do everything on chain, um, or or it becomes, or you have things like privacy issues or just a very limited functionality. But yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we're completely there, but I, I agree it's a large step forward. But it's still like once you get into Ethereum, there's still like some oh, yeah, of pretty hard things to do. And and then you, you go, okay, now we want to deploy something. Oh, I just got to spend $150,000 on an audit first. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Yeah. <laughs> a couple so that, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about the audit. Yes, so this, uh, that is a line item in every, like, in every crypto project that is just way too much, unfortunately. But um, I think necessary at this point in time. Yeah. So what was your what was your first step, actually, into the space then? Did you join Centrifuge or was there another project before that? I always build build things and start things. Um, this is like the, I think third or well, depending on how you count, I think the fourth project that I was uh, working on from day one, um, and so like building a team and coming up with the idea, figuring out how to how to build it. Um, and so with Centrifuge, um, that was actually also my my beginning with blockchain. I I said, okay, like what what could we build in crypto? And and so my background is. I've been um, in Silicon Valley. I was building so software that allowed um, companies to basically get access to finance. So you think of um, a a su supplier has an invoice outstanding to a large business um, that this large business tells them we're going to pay in 90 days. The payment terms are 90 days. So um, you will have to wait for three months until you get your money, but you will pay your salaries every month, sometimes even more. Um, you need to buy and then buy new goods. You need to invest in your business. And so what you do, you like, you either have the cash on hand, but oftentimes companies do need to go to banks to finance this, finance these receivables. And so we, so my co-founders and I actually uh, met at this company called Talia, which was, um, 
building um, a product very much in the Web 2.0 way for for sort of addressing these problems. Is the process called stopgap financing or something? Uh, so, so it's it, well, it's called. Um, I mean, generally the category is trade finance. You would have um, like factoring is what you call financing invoices. Then there's like supply chain finance and like a few different terms. Okay. Um, I would generally put it into like either factoring or trade finance. But yeah, so my co-founders and I were actually working at Talia and doing this. Um, we, and, and so looking into like crypto, we saw a lot of opportunity to improve many things about how this is done um, and specifically like this this power imbalance between smaller companies and larger companies or, or like a a, uh, a car manufacturer and a uh, doorknob supplier for mm -hmm. example um, well if, if the door handle supplier um, is a small medium-sized business somewhere in in uh, in this in the US and and they go to a bank they they go to their local credit union and ask for a for a, a, a financing on their and their invoice to the large manufacturer, they're still going to get somewhere between like 15, 20% APR. However, if, if, if this big, big car manufacturer goes to the, to the large banks and they just say, Oh, we want money. They're basically, they're going to get it for pretty much free 2.7% yeah. APR or something like that easily LIBOR plus a few basis points. So that's that, that imbalance is largely there because this large company has is big enough such that a bank would actually be able to adequately underwrite the credit risk and and they're big enough that it's worth doing that process and and going through it and then giving them a competitive rate because again the buyer can also go uh, with a large company can go to many different banks and negotiate whereas for a small business you're typically not going to go to 20 different banks and and get them to compete those banks won't even play that mm -hmm. game because they know they can just give it to someone else so this company that you used to work for this was that was what they basically that was the problem they were trying to solve so we were we were addressing part of that um and so the problem um sort of that we that we were addressing was definitely that these smaller companies um had better access to finance but it always still relied on the traditional financial system that made it very expensive for them to borrow just because there was not a lot enough uh, competition and there were like so many cases where this this didn't work and sort of so we said okay actually decentralization and blockchain can um make this a lot better because it gives individuals or and every entity using this system the ownership over their own data. And that's, that, that can mean that banks can now underwrite this information, not just based on the information that a large business is able to give them effectively, but also that smaller businesses can, um, can prove their um, transaction history, can sort of show what they have, and, and for banks to be able to, to do that better. Um, and by that being a transparent, more transparent and open market, you can... Um, you can have more competition and and therefore lower lower prices for the suppliers. Yeah. So what exactly is Centrifuge? Is it a is it a blockchain? Is it a is it a protocol? Is it a concept? Like what is it? <laughs> uh, I mean, all of those are are remotely technical terms that have become marketing terms. So <laughs> depends on what kind of what kind of language I should speak. Generally, Centrifuge is an idea. It's a piece of open source software. It has a blockchain that is um, part of it, but then it also has a peer-to-peer -peer network. But I think if I had to describe what Centrifuge does, is it's a a it's a peer-to-peer -peer network. It's a protocol for different parties to exchange data in private. Um, and so simplified, um, I would <clears throat> there's an, an identity piece to it. So people within or entities within that network basically use um, signature keys to sign messages. Um, so I would, for example, if I were to send uh, an invoice to you, Anna, I would um, in the peer-to-peer -peer network find you with your uh, public key, send this, mess send this structured data to you, you would actually sign it. Um, we'd use a, you'd use a blockchain right now this is ethereum but will be our own proof of stake chain soon um we use that chain to commit to this um to this data so what we do here is we we sort of take this in this invoice for example um and we calculate a hash from from all of the data merkle root and we commit to that on chain and then the and what this allows us to do then is we can tokenize these assets meaning you can 
create an NFT that, for example, would represent, in the case of an invoice, the NFT would represent the uh, claim on the payment of this invoice. Oh. And then I can take this NFT and I can go to a, a bank in quotation marks. So go to like a DeFi lending product or um, you could actually sell it on a, on a marketplace. So by selling that NFT, you can now receive financing for this invoice and like back to that story you told about like this previous company it's sort of this is the proof this is using this invoice as collateral exactly. but in a decentralized yeah. blockchain DeFi way yeah and so the idea with with this peer-to-peer -peer network where everyone signs these transactions is that now if i go to a bank and i were to um, show them this invoice i don't just have my information i also have at your signature, Anna, so I can prove to them that this is not just something I made up completely, but um, Anna has signed as well, therefore is at least aware of it and sort of agreed to it. Um, and and so we have the, we have the time timestamp that the blockchain gives us, and um, by committing to these uh, hashes on chain, and we have um, so we ha we can like make make uh, statements about our entire transaction history because if I'm if I'm a business that has been doing this for five years, and I sort of like show this like show a, a history of transactions with you for the last five years. This is something that can be verified. And so, so this should reduce the amount of risk, fraud risk, and sort of underwriting cost um, for the funding side. Um, and so, but this is maybe um, interesting to go into. Um, so maybe about one and a half years ago, we started um, building our, basically we've built this peer-to-peer -peer network. So we're building centrifuge from the ground up stack by stack, sort of building, building layers on top of each other. And so about one and a half years ago, we had um, these NFTs in a very rough first implementation. Um, and we started talking to all of these other DeFi products because like, while well, of course, like, um, like we, we want, we want centrifuge to be successful. We don't want to like build the entire solution. They have the whole, the whole appeal of, of decentralization and, and blockchain is that you have these projects that can work together, code, code that can function together without having to trust each other. Um, and so, so what we wanted to build is we wanted to make sure that these NFTs would be attractive collateral in DeFi. And so we worked at the time with Dharma. Um, we worked with MakerDAO from very early on um, about sort of trying to figure out how we what would be needed to, to have the business get their invoice financed. Um, and the realization was that um, DeFi actually at the time and, and unfortunately still is not really able to scale to this NFT level. Um, so it's it's feasible to finance um, or to borrow against an ERC20 token. Um, Maker can do it. Compound can do it. Um, Dharma used to do that as well, right? Um, but NFTs sort of pose a very different technical challenge, um, which is that they all have widely different credit risk, right? An invoice from me is very different than an invoice from Frederick. Um, and so... And they have different terms. I can't split them up. I can't give you half of my invoice that yeah. easily. And so these challenges, we sort of then started building another sort of uh, layer on top that we we sort of felt like we needed to, and which is uh, what we call centrifuge tin lake, which is um, Sorry, just what a was it? tin lake. Um, tin lake, yeah. Tin lake. <laughs> um, <laughs> names. Um, um, it's it's a basically a set of smart contracts, and then these suppliers can basically deposit their NFTs. So you can sort of think of it as an on-chain portfolio of assets that then investors can invest into this in entire portfolio. Mm -hmm. So you can have, uh, you can set up an instance of Tinlake and deploy these contracts saying, and we're going to use this contract to finance receivables invoices from uh, the German small small businesses in with matching these criteria. And then sort of you, by collecting all of these and putting them into one pool, the ERC, we mint an ERC-20 token again said that can now be used as collateral. Oh, wow. And so this this sort of was this missing piece that we sort of realized about a year ago. It was like, oh, actually, like this blockchain stuff is all fun and people are talking about composability and, and doing crazy things. And this works extremely well with ERC-20 tokens, but sort of the, for NFTs, this is still, um, there's still a long way to go until we have like ways to price them, ways to understand them in an on, on chain, right? Um, of course, you can look yeah. at it and, and read out, but this is a technical challenge that just the scalability isn't there. And so we started building that um, and actually we shipped that mid this year and and sort of have been since then doing first um the some of the first uh transactions with with actual money um and so that's so looking at centrifuge is sort of this entire stack of going from 
messaging off-chain to tokenizing assets to so be able to have ownership on-chain to then uh, bundling them to make them uh, understandable, financeable by by others. I mean, I, I think you um, hit the nail on the head with like saying it's it's about how you pray, price these things, right? Where ERC twenty tokens, it's still not super technically easy to price them. You need some sort of oracle feed. You need to go out to exchanges and go. This is the price of this ERC twenty token, but you can do it all in the same way for all of them. Whereas for an NFT, you, as your example with the bank, like the bank might want to take five years of history, like invoicing history into account and how they price this. So you can't like it's it's not a you know just a straightforward way. You do the same thing for everyone. Um, yeah, this kind of becomes. I wouldn't say it's like technically hard in terms of like code and implementation, but technically hard in like. You know, everyone has a different opinion on what the price of this actually is. Yeah, yeah. So we we basically so on a technical level, this is it is fairly easy to to sort of build this portfolio of assets and then issue an ERC twenty against it, which is essentially what what Tin Lake does. But then it also has, um, and so this is where where the, where it's going in the future. Basically, this exactly this pricing information, like where it's coming from. Um, the more decentralized, the more we have different entities that can do this, the better. Um, not just because we 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 want to avoid centralization at all costs, but also because then by having that, you can sort of create competition for for these assets, right? By by having two or three different underwriters in this system who like try to provide pricing information and are incentivized to provide good pricing information. Um, by putting up some sort of stake, by having a a, uh, a transaction fee on on these financing transactions, um, by doing that you can you can have this the system where all the players are incentivized for to sort of have an optimal result for the for the individual borrower um, and the and the lenders that the lenders worry about having a low default risk and an ac- accurate interest rate as much as the the borrowers do right. I just realized this is like a very it's almost like next level. DeFi, like DeFi right now is still so like use collateral issue, like to like sort of loan. It's very basic. (laughs) And this seems like, like a few levels ahead, but then there's, there's like a bunch missing between (laughs) what exists in DeFi and what you're trying to do. I mean, yeah, of course. Like if you, if you would go to a bank today and tell them, I'm going to give you $150 and I want a loan for a hundred (laughs) euros or or equal equivalent of a hundred dollars in euros. I think everyone would do it. Right. And that's what MakerDAO essentially does right now. It's like, you can, you can take your ETH and lock it up and get DAI, which solves some needs i mean of course like there's there's a there's a need for that but in the end like all of DeFi today is over collateralized like very easy um products and and so sort of what we're trying to do is we're trying to build um like actual borrowing against unsecured loans which which has its challenges but the i think those we can solve because you i'm of course, it, the, our current financial system had issues with banks not always being good about issuing loans and pricing them correctly, um, and so and the mortgage we, crisis exactly was a little bit like that, based was, on that was that was definitely definitely an example. Almost like yeah, it's this sort of like adding them together, changing the risk profile. Yeah, and then mostly also um, hiding it and making it extremely complicated to assess this. And I think that's where um, the transparency or, or the the code that can sort of enforce these rules in in blockchain can. Um, help us prevent it it will still require people to think about it um, but at least it can be made visible and it can be shown that like those those assets are way too over leveraged Mm -hmm. and like if like if something happens here then like this whole system is going to fall apart so these things i think we can make we can make crypto a better thing but definitely um i mean the crypto is not used for lending, but if you look at um, the economy we are in, it would not function without unsecured lending. Like you, a business overexpends itself constantly. Um, we like if you get a mortgage on a house, right? There's like it's basically the the um, like you're putting in some collateral, but those banks then like take all of that collateral and and like take money in from a from a lender uh, from a customer and give that money to you. And so like like a in many places, you people don't 
over collateralized stuff. Um, and because there's a future, there's an expectation of future growth. Um, and so as long as you have that, you, you're fine. Right. And, and sort of, so these lending products, I think what we're, is what we're looking at. Um, and of course that comes with challenges, but, um, if done well, that will be, um, much better than, than sort of the, the system we have today. So let's dig in a little bit into um how centrifuge has actually been built because i know there's been a journey here and like you know did you start at at ethereum which is sort of what you were talking about before there's some some side chain story involved somewhere and and now kind of ending up on substrate so i'm curious to hear what that journey looked like i mean yeah so we have I think we do have a very much a, a lean startup approach that is maybe a bit atypical in, in the blockchain space, mostly because of the way projects have been fundraising um, to give. Yeah, I think we have to um, give a little bit of talk about the time when we started and, and sort of what was going on. Right. We started in summer 2017 and and. I think we've we've all we are all in, in the founding team sort sort of seasoned entrepreneurs and and sort of said okay actually what we want to do is want to figure out our idea and then like work on this and sort of build a first prototype and and do all that and and at the same time this ico craziness was going on um and we actually did not like the idea of just like going out there and putting together a, a, a fluffy white paper with um like 40 pages of, of stuff that is going to be outdated uh, half a year later when you actually validate all of these things. And so we, we didn't raise um, a huge amount of money and just then sat back and, and uh, started building in a, in a small, um, small lab, um, not shipping anything. So we built like, a, I'm probably like a couple hundred lines of code, like a very first um, proof of concept, just a, a way to like have, off-chain data, like private data, sort of be committed to on-chain. But it's, this is actually very similar to these um, open open timestamp on Bitcoin um, and sort of elaborated on that a bit and sort of built tooling around. And that was actually the first demo that we, we were raising money with in 2017, end of 2017. And then we did a small round and we said, okay, like we want to build this. We knew that Ethereum 1.0 was not the right thing long-term, but we still wanted to just like keep testing things out and, and shipping stuff. And so we did start building all of our technology on on Ethereum. And the thing you have to know also, and I think that's something that um, people thinking about privacy or thinking about um, like the Web3 space is that of course, you can like use a use Ethereum two or one excuse me, um, already today to like have transactions and transfer tokens. Like a lot of the infrastructure is actually not on chain, right? If you build your application with like ninety nine percent of the complexity on chain, then you're probably doing something wrong. Um, in most cases, you actually want you need a vast amount of infrastructure around it, and so we didn't actually build. Um, we didn't really care about what our blockchain was going to be because the challenges we had to solve first is how do different nodes discover each other on the network and exchange data in private um, because you cannot just upload that to uh, a centralized server and then say oh but we have the blockchain that that keeps track of it so so sort of we the focus first was just building this peer-to-peer network um, and the stack for that was actually um, at first we were looking at quorum and how they did their private transaction layer um, actually we used some of that code um, and then realized no this is the not really a good fit and then we switched over to using lib p2p which at the time was just being pulled out of ipfs um, as the sort of abstraction network abstraction layer that gives you a peer-to-peer network and i'm actually very happy that this is now sort of becoming the de facto standard um at the time where we were probably one of the first go projects seriously looking into how to use it Mm. um and so sort of this was our approach and we said okay probably we will um move off of ethereum for for some part of this um we did write a white paper at some point that that sort of went into uh, the sidechain idea because of course you have to at some point talking to investors and sort of also define yourself in the market so we went through this exercise but then still like it wasn't sort of the first thing we did until really like i would say nine months ago where when it started to be clear that um we want to 
grow faster than we can on Ethereum. Um, and that, and, and so to put things into perspective, um, a, a customer of our, a potential customer of ours, for example, and, and a software provider that provides e-invoicing products to suppliers and buyers, um, they typically have, I mean, they, like a low number would be a few thousand transactions a day. Um, and so if you think about that and you think about ETH 1.0 and the, the transaction throughput there, um, like one customer can already pretty much like fill every single block that we have on Ethereum. And so that's, that's sort of when we said, okay, so we've, we've done this, we've done this core product, not sort of addressing privacy by moving a lot of data off chain, um, addressing, sort of the needs of businesses by having a peer-to-peer node that is very tightly coupled to the to the application on chain um, but not solving um, for scalability yet um, and not and also knowing that sort of the privacy primitives we want to use um, on ethereum are sort of kind of outdated so that was another consideration for saying okay like we want to actually be able to start building a, a chain that has optimized cryptographic primitives for doing stuff in zero knowledge. Um, And so we went through a couple iterations. We looked at Cosmos. We looked at other chains. We looked at Quorum again, though definitely not something I'd want to use for that right now. And then Substrate. um, And so it was an interesting point. I think even now we're kind of quite far ahead with with sort of using Substrate and and looking at our timeline. I think we will end up launching quite a bit before Polkadot goes live. Um, nevertheless, for us, we said, okay, actually comparing comparing Molson was the decision of the two, Cosmos and Substrate. Um, we liked the developer experience and the tooling better of Substrate. Um, and, and sort of Polkadot didn't even play a, a, a big part of that decision. Um, so our strategy was we want to launch the proof-of-stake network and... Um, Basically, solve this these uh, scalability challenges that we're having now. To then, as a, in, a, in a sort of a second release, when we've moved over a lot of the infrastructure that's on Ethereum today, um, into into um, into Substrate, into our own chain, then like sort of start building on top. It's really interesting to hear um, that you you'd be launching before parachains on Polkadot exist, because that's actually. Um, kind of an, an intentional thing from parity side right where we actually went we're going to build substrate and then we're going to build polka dot on top of substrate if we just build polka dot and and build built out the the basic thing we'd probably be done a year ago but because we decided to build substrate first like this is the thing that's actually now getting to a point of stability and and it is a thing that you can actually launch something on um and polka dot is is kind of going a bit further down the road um, yeah, so so for us, like deciding to launch on, on Substrate was actually really just this this uh, goal to start building with something, and we looked at we looked at sort of the tools out there. We we don't. I mean, we we're not a blockchain company, as in we're building new technology for how blockchains should work. Um, I think we're building new technologies for how people can interact together. In privacy, um, but but sort with of for us with a blockchain, a of blockchain. course, in a decentralized way with open source software, and so that requires a blockchain. And because of that, we we decided to go with Substrate. Um, the appeal to that, and and where I actually um, also see where this Ethereum 2.0 is going to is, we, we see right now Ethereum as the market leader, and everything exists within one chain, and it's extremely easy to move your die from Compound to Maker, and then to Dharma and then go and put it into your Gnosis multisig. And all of that is extremely simple and leads to a great developer experience, but it doesn't scale. And even if we manage to scale Ethereum 2.0 to by a factor of a million, all of the world's computation can, couldn't happen on, on Ethereum, right? Um, and so so for that reason, I, I, the way I see this, this world changing, and, and by, by that I mean the, the blockchain world, is I think, whereas right now the it's very hard to trust other chains and, and it's very uh, it's not a very common thing to have um, assets come from other chains or transactions come from other chains we will invariably end up in in this and I and so there's like in the web world there there was this shift in thinking as well when like everything went from sort of being synchronous and like you had one request that went to the server and the like that single request was served by one one application and one like huge stack and now like if you 
post an update on Facebook, you probably have 50 different services communicating like in an asynchronous manner. Um, and, and you have 20 different databases that get updated. And then there's like some magic happening that sort of reconciles all of this, right? And so I think that we will have similar shifts in, in how development works. Like if we're, we're sort of with Ethereum and, and blockchain today, we're in this uh, web 1.0 world where um, actually the technology is mostly still extremely simple um, and, and this shift will come and this shift will come by Cosmos developing IBC, by Polkadot's uh, relay messaging, by Ethereum's sharding, um, right? Like for example, at DEF CON, um, I think people were, to, in, for, to me, it was a bit surprising by how much people were surprised about, oh, like we have Ethereum 2.0 is going to break composability. Um, I think for me, that was like a very, um, a thing to expect. Like, of course, yeah, we're going to have like multiple ledgers and multiple systems that need to be asynchronized and transactions ha can't be atomic any anymore and you have to to like do a two-phase commit or things like that, right? We solved all of these, pro like not all of them, but we solved a lot of these problems in, in other systems. And so we'll just have to like sort of get used to that. So from that perspective, our decision then was to launch with Substrate, build a fairly simple um, proof of stake network that's using the standard like, grandpa babe uh, consensus mechanism. And so this is just this first place and, and we're, we're like bridging this into Ethereum because of course DeFi happens on Ethereum and like our NFTs is, should should it, is, in the end end up there. But but sort of this has been the, the strategy to just like start there and see how, how this single chain universe right now within Ethereum is going to change into a, a multi-chain universe in the next couple of months, hopefully. Or maybe maybe a little longer. We'll see. So next up, what I want to talk about is um, kind of privacy and talk a little bit more about your involvement with zero knowledge proof research and how that is can be incorporated into the centrifuge model. I think before we go into the zero knowledge stuff, though, let's talk about the privacy part because businesses trying to do business on chain, it's not like privacy would be nice. It's like it has to exist and it has to exist in a relatively complete and easy to use way for them to participate in it. And I think your business definitely falls into that category. I mean, so, so I, I can explain a very simple reason why for businesses is a, it, it's an absolute must, I think. Um, so like as an example, if you have a coffee roasting company and they have, um, they buy coffee for uh, 1 million euros a month and they sell coffee for 2 million euros a month and they have two employees. Uh, so now you know, okay, they make a million of profit a month minus salaries of, or minus salaries of maybe like, I don't know, 100, 100 maximum 100,000. So you know their profit margin is 900,000. As if I now I'm a buyer of that from that coffee roastery, I would tell them, look, guys, I know you're, you're like, cost is probably not more than like 1.2 million euros a month um and so why should i buy for you for 2 million euros a month when i can negotiate that price down to 1.2 and so like basically like if you think of a business doing business on chain like having having this like there are very few markets where this is actually transparent right like in most instances like this is your most private data and so um and so that's also why like we start, sort of did things the hard way. We tried to build privacy first and sort of sacrificing a lot of functionality and sacrificing in like finality or in, sometimes in, in like certain guarantees because um, for a company, for a coffee roaster to be able to have both their supplier and their buyers um, interact with them on, on in one system where, where all amounts would be public would not be an option, right? Mm. Um, and so, I mean, maybe talking about the transparency aspect, I think... This should be done with voluntarily um, providing this information. Um, I think if we build systems that force you to be public by default, then you can never protect basically yourself from this public information being abused, right? Um, and, and used against you. And used against you, exactly. But then I think we have plenty of tools that will actually make it quite simple to then voluntarily disclose um, and, and so, for example, this um, my example with the like five years of transaction history. Um, you can actually do provide a proof that you've been in business for five years by providing these um, signatures of documents, these transactions of documents, um, and doing so by limiting the disclosure of information as much as necessary. Like going back to your coffee roaster example, just to keep on that narrative. So, coffee roasters want the like 
the profit margin kept private, mm -hmm. so how much they spend and receive should be kept mm -hmm. private. But say they needed a loan and they wanted to prove somehow that they've paid their invoices for the last five years, they could still have that sort of transparency and guaranteed validity. Yeah, so... Um I mean, and I, I think that's where like zero knowledge proofs become extremely interesting. Um, so, sort of the the thing we've we've started with was basically a way to create this data, and now that you have this data, that you can verify that the, the point in time it was created, who who signed signed it, meaning who attested to it, um, you can. Um, you can now basically build computation that uses this data. And, and sort of our fir the first thing we launched with was actually not doing that with zero knowledge proofs. It was basically, um, so this idea of tokenizing a payment obligation from an invoice, that means that you have this off-chain in invoice that has fields like the uh, line items of an invoice, so what exactly you sold. It has the tax information, it has the delivery address, it has the buyer, it has the supplier, it has the amount and the due date. If you, however, want to go to a bank and sell them a an, an invoice, really the only thing they care about is sort of this, the, the due date and who's the who's the, the debtor. So I could even just say, as a supplier, I have this invoice for... 500,000 euros worth of coffee. I want to sell this to you. Here's a proof that this NFT is basically linked to this invoice that's worth 500,000 euros and will be paid in, in 90 days. And now the bank can look at this information without actually getting your entire invoice information. And so we've sort of built our like off-chain messaging protocol based on that. Right now, this is sort of what, what we're live with, um, is that these, in, these NFTs can be minted with this metadata that is verified against these off-chain um, transactions, so we call those anchors. Um, so on the on-chain anchor that commits to to the to the message off-chain, to the document off-chain, and and but in a sort of in a second step, and this is where we're we're moving towards um, zero knowledge proofs, is that of course now instead of revealing just simple a subset of fields from off of, of an off-chain document, you can actually have computation that would give certain statements about this off-chain information, but doesn't reveal the, the data that was used. And so to take this invoice example one step further, if there was a an underwriter, someone that was willing to rate different businesses for a credit score, um, then, then you could, for example, prove to um, the bank that your invoice was is made out towards a business with a certain score, but not to which one. Mm. Um, and so you can have an NFT that basically is minted by providing a zero-knowledge proof that verifies that I, this invoice has, matches certain criteria, for example, the, who the buyer is and that that buyer has this rating, but then I don't have to reveal the buyer just to prove to you what the rating is. Wow. Um, and so you I could like do that. that. Or that's you, a that's a yeah. fantastic. I'm always looking for sort of more examples of this, like zero knowledge for this transparent privacy combo. And this is a very, it's a sophisticated one, but it's yeah, cool. yeah. It needs a bit of setup and it needs a lot of explaining around how the system works. But so essentially, right like today, you would give the bank your your customer list, and then the bank would ask a, a credit rating agency, hey, like what are the ratings of these companies, and then look at it and do this calculation themselves but that leads to like you giving up more information that you want and so like whenever we look at these challenges we always say okay like how can we build this in a way that by default no information is leaked at all and that basically the suppliers can weigh for themselves how much information they're willing to give, give up and so a credit rating probably gives you a good price maybe sometimes you need to reveal who the name is and sort of giving this optionality i think is is crucial right yeah. So I want to hear a little bit more about like the actual zero knowledge work that you're doing, what kind of systems you're playing with, what kind of tools you're using. I know from Zcon 1, you were presenting with the Zocrates team. And we've had Zocrates on the show. We had Jacob, I think last year, like a full year ago, talk about what Zocrates was and how it works. Um, but I'd be curious to hear, like, what is your involvement with Zocrates and what are the tools that are actually built into the centrifuge stack? So this is currently under active development. And so so we're, we're at, none of this is on mainnet yet, but we've sort of started doing work with, with um, Socrates and working with Socrates. And maybe I'll try to give you like very brief history of, of my experience with, with zero knowledge and like 
and specifically CK snarks. Um, so like I've, I've given you plenty of reasons why privacy matters to, to us, to myself personally, and, and for us as a project. So in 2017 already, I was trying to like see, okay, what is the tooling for developers to build um, zero knowledge proofs? And so for us, we're not using zero knowledge proofs in like one core part of our protocol, but we're basically, we have this vision of people building like zero knowledge enabled applications on top, right? Because we're, we're building the infrastructure for these, for the data to exist and to be exchanged. But then an invoice with a credit rating is a very different snark. Like that example I just mentioned is a very different snark than, um, a, a, a real estate, uh, token and a house that is represented on chain where you want to maybe have a verify and zero knowledge that like this is up to like the, the paperwork is all right or that that certain criteria are met and so when we think about that is like we're not trying to solve a particular problem within our system we're trying to allow people to define these assets and like build these programs and so i was always very interested in in sort of the the most developer friendly toolchain and and from the very beginning i think this always was socrates although until very recently they were lacking a lot of tooling around it a lot of features that actually uh, made it useful so while the language itself um, in 2017 is already simple enough um, like you couldn't really do anything with it at the time because it didn't even have a hash function um, so like for i mentioned like our documents are basically converted into Merkle trees and hashed on chain. So if you wanted to uh, validate something in a zero knowledge proof, you would need to validate this Merkle proof. And so you need to be able to do a Merkle proof very easily in, in, uh, in a snark. And if you try to do so, you will very quickly realize that, oh, well, there's like proving systems and snark programming languages, but then there's this whole other set of problems of which hash function can you use that is both efficient on chain and efficient in a snark. On Ethereum, there are none, uh, sadly, and this is like one of the reasons why we're moving to um, to our own chain. Um, we're using Pedersen hashes for our snarks, and this is like, for example, um, just not feasible to do um, on Ethereum, or not feasible meaning like at least 10 times expensive as SHA-256. Um, we are using um, we're using like specific uh, signature schemes that again are easy to verify in a snark and sort of and and so going back to like my history like those tools were all missing in 2017 and like you at the time Zcash was so Zcash at Z, Zcon one I think they start sort of started introducing their new um, crypto which I'm sure you've done a, a podcast about right um, they've managed to cut the the transaction time in Zapling from uh, 45 seconds roughly to four seconds. And that was not done by using a better zero knowledge proof. So for the most part, it was done by heavily optimizing the cryptography used in SNARKs, meaning those um, job, job, the job, job embedded curve. Um, and so sort of those are sort of the, the, the parts around the proof system that, that are really important, that really make a difference. Yeah, I and think actually, I think we did talk about that in the Zuko episode, yeah, episode 50. Yeah, we great. went over it. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so 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 looking in 2017, the de facto standard, um, and I think still the de facto standard in like Snarks is basically set by by the Zcash team, which is an amazing team. Um, the the de facto standard was SHA-256. It was extremely slow. It took 45 seconds to do a transaction um, on 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 Ethereum. SHA-256 wasn't even available. So for us, it was like, okay, this is way too early. We're not in the business of hiring a team of. 10 cryptographers to like work that out there are probably not even 10 cryptographers in the world that can do that but anyway you get the point <laughs> um, we want to build applications and we said we knew that there are plenty of other problems we had to solve first meaning the peer-to-peer -peer network and the way that data is exchanged because of course like a snark you can create a proof for it but you need to have the data for it and so mm -hmm. so we started tackling this problem first and I, I sort of made sure that I was extremely connected in the zero knowledge community, spent a lot of time just knowing about everything that's going on and, and sort of making a lot of those design decisions in our protocol, knowing how this will be used in Snarks. And so, for example, how we build the trees, how what the hash function is we're using, how we encode things. For example, like you cannot have arbitrary length strings in, in a Snark, like because like so the loops and, and sort of this this arbitrariness of, of the length makes it extremely expensive or some technically sometimes even impossible we sort of had to like 
design our system with that in mind, right? Um, and, and we've done that, and now we're at the point where we actually are still working with Socrates. Um, we're, we're basically on Ethereum right now. We've created this um, proof of concept and worked together with them to um, use their baby JubJub high crypto library that has an implementation of these efficient cryptographic primitives that are compatible with Socrates. And so we're, we're using Socrates to implement this NFT that um, verifies the credit rating of a supplier. So looking at Socrates, it, the tooling is not just the programming language that you need to create a snark. There are many of those. You also need the right hash functions. You need a way to sign messages. You need a way to generate keys. Um, and so this is where I've been sort of following them. And I, and I like a lot of the development that they've been doing is really saying um, as, a, as an application developer, we don't, you don't want to worry about that kind of hash function. You don't want to worry about how you use those, what primitives to use, right? That's like, then you very quickly get into um, reading papers on hash functions and comparing them and trying to find issues. And I've done all that, but uh, like, this is not what I would expect our user base, sort of the people that are, want to build on top of Centrifuge to do, right? And so Socrates' approach is, it's not always the most efficient. It's not always the um, the most advanced cryptography like sometimes it lacks the very raw like low level um, features that you would want but it also makes sure that you can't do a lot of the mistakes that you can very easily do if you don't watch out and you use one of those lower level tools so for example there is this um, bug in in a lot of the the first ethereum mixers that went live that are based on Miximus, where you had a number overflow and that number overflow meant that the numbers on ethereum didn't necessarily match one to one like an, a number in evm didn't necessarily match one to one with an, a number that was then passed into a snark and so what what does that mean it means if there, if you can pass two numbers into a, into a snark, and Ethereum would validate it both as being a number, then you get this uh, non-determinism where you can basically do a double spend, for example. Wow. Um, so it's the the problem is very similar to like an overflow um, in a regular program. So that's where I think Socrates is helping a lot in like making sure that people don't accidentally. Uh, run into these issues because that those are huge security vulnerabilities for and basically render your snark useless. What do you think is what is Socrates comparable to? Like, is there anything else out there like Socrates? Um, I mean, there's yeah, there's Circom. There, I mean, sort of Socrates replaced Libsnark. I think Libsnark was sort of expected you to be a cryptographer and gave you some of the tools to like build these things. Uh, whereas Socrates has the expectation that you're a software developer that uh, now wants to um, just build a very simple, like build something themselves. Okay. And so I think, and, and there's, there's many different on this spectrum. I mentioned Circom, um, Snarky by the O1 Labs people. Oh, yeah. um, so there, there are a few of those that, that come from this. And, and, it, and there's, it, this is expected. The ecosystem is super early. There's not one way to do it, of course. And there are differences in flavors. I mean, God knows how many programming languages there are for regular programs. But so I think Socrates had, had this um, focus on user friendliness or developer friendliness in that case. Cool. When uh, we had them on last time to talk about it, there was a very large focus on generating Solidity code for the verifier part. So kind of like assuming that you're trying to do something with Ethereum and, and deploying the verifier on the Ethereum blockchain. Has there been any movement to like generalize that or, or include more things like generating a WASM verifier or verifiers in, in anything? Yeah, um, actually, I have a friend who um, built a, I think I built a was improver and verifier for Socrates. Um, there were other, um, someone, and I think that was the Kedit team, if I recall correctly, they built a Bulletproof backend, so you could use it with Bulletproof instead of um, ZK Snarks. Um, <clears throat> so there, th this ecosystem has been growing, yeah. So I think it's, it, this was the start. The start was there's this Alt-BN curve on Ethereum, uh, you want to be able to pro uh, program a snark for it. You want to prove it off chain, and you want to verify it on chain. That was the first use case. Um, and then it used libsnark in the back end, and it had this very simple programming language to let you do these things. It's still, for a very large part, this is still I would say eighty percent of the focus. Um, but now 
people have been extending it. They replaced the underlying library. I think it's now Bellman. Um, people added different provers, different verifiers. Um, there are different proving systems. Now Graal 16 made it a lot easier. Um, <clears throat> so sort of it's, it's been changing and it's been growing, I think, which is, which is great, yeah. But going back to that question of like, does it, like Socrates, the way I understood it was also just like very tied to Ethereum specifically. Do you know if that... It has changed. I mean, one one thing with one problem with Ethereum, right, is that unfortunately, even in the most recent hard fork, we didn't manage to get uh, new elliptic curves into into the EVM, and and so um, basically everyone's using this alt BN curve on Ethereum, which because that's the only one that's available, and and um, and that's the one that Socrates supports natively, but. Um, you really want to be using something else. If you were designing your infrastructure today, you would not use it. And so Socrates still solves that uh, use case where you want to build something with Ethereum, but um, they've, for example, the Bulletproof backend, um, like sort of creating this modularity in the proving backend is something they've they've worked on and I think is, is getting better now. And so for us, actually, it's it's not a constraint for us anymore. We we know that if we want to plug in a different background backend because we want to be on BLS 381, 381 is one of the curves um then we can do so um yeah and i think if there's a wasm backend then it becomes super gen- general and like you can deploy it like because it's an entirely computational thing you don't have to make any assumptions about your environment or the data layer or anything so you can just if it's a wasm blob you can deploy it on any wasm chain yeah yeah so we we um we actually started looking into um Bellman is luckily written in Rust, so the backend, all of Socrates is written in Rust, which is uh, what all of the uh, current crypto is, seems to be written in, or at least a large part of it. Um, and so that compiles very easily to to uh, to Wasm, right? And so actually for for Socrates, it's it's uh, definitely an option. And and I think something we've, we're thinking of doing ourselves is developing this um, Wasm verifier at least right you know, you care about the verifier in a, in a blockchain con- concept for the for the for the chain for the for wasm on the chain but then actually what people have also been doing from the very beginning is if you want to create a proof and you don't want to require your users to download software uh, which is not as important for us because this is like a b2b like not a user interface but like more of an api that people use but for um like for example, a mixer like Miximus, um, having a prover in Wasm allows you to have the browser actually create the proof because now you can mm-hmm. run um, you can run that. And I think so. Uh, I'm not sure if Socrates is the preferred tool that people use for that, but there are, um, I would think Circom or WebSnarks would be one that actually very easily integrates into like creating these proofs with JavaScript now, right? And okay. so now you can have the browser create this proof and submit it to the to Ethereum with Infura or, or whatnot. I mean, everything that you're talking about right now, it's moving incredibly quickly. We're hearing, I mean, especially in the zero knowledge space, not maybe not only in the zero knowledge space, but like recently in the zero knowledge space, we've been seeing so much, so many new papers coming out, so many new paradigms. And we're all kind of on edge waiting for like what's going to come next. And I've heard from other teams where they're very tentative in actually deciding on any particular system because of this change how are you actually making like how are you developing a product like a like a a full project using some of these things given the speed at which it's changing i mean the the thing again is like usually the snark part is actually a very small part in infrastructure, the same way that your smart contract is very tiny, like you end up building a lot of tooling around it to make it usable for the user. Um, and so, I mean, that, and that's why we focused on that because when we looked at this in 2017, it was like, oh, we're not going to like develop our first snark on day one and then like build everything around it. You said, okay, no, like, like we need so much other stuff around it that we can like start with that. Um, like it really is so right now, it would be a full-time job to like keep up with all of the papers that get published and all of the, um, like new proving systems that are coming out, and and so now you have like upgradable, um, um, uh, tr- upgradable trusted setups. You have um, uh, universal trusted setups. You have um, you have proving systems without trusted setups. And so I think this will significantly change the the experience for how you develop these things. But I think the infrastructure around it is is it's going to largely stay the same. Um, and so for us right now, we're, we're basically saying, um, 
we're definitely not picking one of these like six months old papers and are going to implement it. I think that's, it's already the fact that Zcash is the only project that is using um, SNARKs, um, really the, not the only project, but pretty much the only project, at least they were in the beginning. Um, I mean, it's, this is like compared to like any of the cryptography we use in other places in this industry, this is extremely um extremely immature right and so i'd be like very careful with what what's happening and like definitely wait and see um and and i, I think this will take a good year or two more until i think this this recent um wave of of uh, new technology coming out like for for people to actually understand it well enough to like break some of the first ones and and have an idea of, of what's um more secure and for us like we're I mean, again, like we, we launched on Ethereum knowing that probably it's not going to scale and solve our needs. Um, we're probably going to um, also ship um, like something using ZK Snarks with trusted setups that where, I, where I'm pretty sure I would bet I would bet on on the uh, trusted setup the way we know it now, probably not being the way that it's gonna it's done in the future because it is a huge issue. It, it's like doing this ceremony is is a lot of hassle, and if you had a universal trusted setup, that would make it so much better. But re the reality is, the market needs to just or the the, in, the the even academia needs to still figure out like are they secure? How can we use them? Um, what are they broken? Um, or maybe even there's a better version. So I think wait and see a little bit, but um, also just use what is sort of established today, which I think is just the, the crypto that uh, Zcash Sapling is using. They're like, they've shipped that and they, they're not really innovating on Snarks at the moment. They're publishing papers, but like if you look at their development roadmap, um, actually the, the challenge for them now is, is scaling this and, and sort of making sure that the, the tooling around it is ready. And before they run into the next uh, barrier, um, technological barrier on the ZK snark side is probably still going to be, be a bit of time. Um, and I think, so that's, we're, we're at this point where like the same with Ethereum 1.0 and 2.0, where we have the system now that we can probably do a lot of stuff with and expand on. Cool. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. I think it's really cool to actually talk to talk to you, talk to a project that's building with all of this in mind, sort of from the ground up. And I want to wish you a lot of luck with it. Keep us posted. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>